Today being Remembrance Sunday, our thoughts go towards sacrifice and those who have laid down their life for others. And of course, if you're a follower of Christ, you're thinking about his sacrifice. The Apostle Paul wrote to the believers in Rome, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And in a moment, we're going to... Uh, have the opportunity to hear about a soldier talking about his faith, Major General Roddy Porter. Now, in the, in the conversation that we have together, he's very, very modest, and he doesn't really tell you much about himself and quite how distinguished he is. So I thought I would tell you about him. I had to Google him to find out, and this is what I discovered on the net that he was commissioned into the Royal Welsh Fusiliers in 1980, and he saw active service with them as a platoon commander, as an adjutant, as company commander and commanding officer on several tours of Northern Ireland and with the UN in Bosnia. He was on the staff of the 4th Armoured Brigade and he served in the Gulf War of 1991, involved in Operation Granby and Desert Storm and in Bosnia in 1993 to 94. He held three appointments in the Ministry of Defence and commanded an infantry brigade in Northern Ireland. He became a Major General in 2008, and he worked for a year in the multinational force headquarters in Baghdad, Iraq, responsible to the commanding general and American ambassador for reconciliation initiatives with the Shia and Sunni militias. His final military appointment was Chief of Staff in the Permanent Joint Headquarters, Northwood. He was Colonel of a Regiment of the Royal Welsh for six years. He is at the moment President of the Armed Forces Christian Union and a Council Member of the Soldiers and Airmen's Scripture Readers Association, amongst other positions. But I think you get the gist of it. He is no lightweight. So I hope that you enjoy this interview. Roddy, it's very, very, very kind of you to uh, subject yourself to this ordeal of a conversation. But uh, many people have recommended I get in touch with you. I, I guess I should fess up that we've never actually met face to face. So it's the first time we've had a chance to say boo to one another. So could I just invite you to say a few words about yourself and your family? Certainly. Well, thank you very much for the invitation. It's, uh, it's a delight to have this conversation with you. Um, I'm married to a lady called Marianne. Um, she's a, a, a full career teacher. Um, I, was, I was in the army for 31 years um, and retired in 2011. I worked in London for six years after that. And I'm now the chief executive of a military Christian charity called Military Ministries International. And our mission is to help Christians in the military follow Jesus 
in their armed forces around the world. And of course, there are some hot spots where we have friends at the right at this moment uh, who we're praying will be able to follow the Lord in what they have to do. Thank you for that brief summary. You very modestly not told us that you're a major general, but I'll spill the beans. <laughs> what you have told us, though, is that you're both a follower of Christ, a Christian, and you've been in the army. And I'd love to know the story behind both those things, how you became a follower of Christ and when and how you decided to enlist for the army. Certainly. Um, I think I was always bound for the armed forces. Every male relative um, I had who was older than me was either a sailor, mostly sailors, actually. Uh, my, and I had one uncle who was a soldier. Uh, I wanted to join the Navy all my life. Uh, but age 17, they said, you can't drive a ship if you wear glasses. And I thought, what on earth's the point of joining the Navy then? I'll never have a command of my own. And um, my father suggested I thought about the army and it was in my blood. And so I applied to join the army during my A-levels. Um, and after having taken my A-levels um, and leaving school, I saw an advertisement in a newspaper for a teaching position in a very small prep school down in Devon. And what intrigued, it actually intrigued my mother before it intrigued me, uh, was that this particular advertisement called for somebody who wanted a demanding and challenging year. And to cut a long interview story short, uh, I ended up accepting a position in this very small school uh, down in Devon, just outside the town of Honiton. Uh, and what immediately struck me about this school was uh, that they seemed to follow the teaching of Jesus Christ in everything they did. That was both a, a surprise and a great shock to me. Although I'd been a chorister all my life and following the traditions of the Church of England, I could recite the Matin service pretty much verbatim. I hadn't encountered this kind of approach to Christianity at all. Uh, these were prep school boys, most of whom seemed to have a, what I now would call a living faith. Uh, and as an 18-year-old, beer-swilling, woman-chasing boy, I found this quite disturbing. Especially when a boy comes up to you and says, Sir, I've got a headache. Will you pray for me? And the headmaster and headmistress of this school uh, took their Christian faith very seriously and took a lot of time during the school day to impart Christian faith to the kids who responded wonderfully. Uh, and I saw at work in this school... Uh, and many miracles of the Holy Spirit. During the year I was there, uh, in, uh, in my gap year before they were called gap years, we didn't need the doctor once, uh, because if a child was ill or had had an accident, the headmistress prayed for him and he recovered. And this was both the practice and the expectation of the school. And these kids knew that Jesus was real and they knew that if they asked him to do something, he was going to do it. Most extraordinary. I'd never seen this before. And I found that quite disturbing and very challenging. And we went to a very, very lively church in South Chard, uh, which had been uh, used in the Pentecost, had been very um, one of the early charismatic churches uh, in the UK in the 60s, I believe. Uh, and I found that service quite disturbing as well, because it, if it was anything, it wasn't Anglican. Um, and I struggled with it. But what I was seeing week by week was Jesus Christ at work in power in the school and the truth of the Bible being um, explained in the church. And so when 
one of the elders stood up one Sunday morning and preached a gospel message about our need to give our lives to Jesus Christ, to ask him for forgiveness of our sins and to believe that he took our sins on his body on the cross and had paid the price that would set us free to follow him. I knew it was true. And for me, coming to faith at that stage was uh, really as simple as two plus two equaling four. I'd seen him at work. I couldn't deny his existence. And when somebody explained the gospel message to me, I knew I had to take um, take some steps in his direction. And on that basis, I asked Jesus Christ into my life. That was the start of what has been thus far a lifetime of discipleship as well. Wow. Wow. I can see that I'm going to want to record session two, perhaps on Pentecost Sunday. But we better keep we better keep Remembrance Sunday in mind. And an obvious question that flows from that wonderful story is so that's the beginning, as you tell it, of your turning to God and a life of trusting Him and of faith, which makes me want to ask: Has your faith made a difference to you while you've been in the army, and have you ever been? under fire or in danger and felt the presence of God, called upon him for help, that kind of thing? Yeah. Um, when, when that gap year finished, I went pretty much straight to Sandhurst. And I found Sandhurst a wonderful place to be as a Christian. I found easy to express my faith and live my faith out. There was one occasion when I was in the Gulf War in 1991. Uh, we were there to remove, extract Saddam Hussein and his forces from Kuwait and invite them to return to Iraq. Uh, and I was the operations captain in an armoured brigade headquarters. And my boss, the brigadier, said to me one morning, Roddy, get yourself away in your armoured vehicle, go and co-locate with the Americans, because we'll be passing through them tomorrow to do our assaults on the enemy. So off I went in my armoured vehicle with uh, a friend who was a captain in the, in the um, Coldstream Guards, uh, and we went off to co-locate ourselves with the uh, Americans. And as we were um, getting information from them and passing it back to our own headquarters, we heard over the American airwaves uh, an intelligence report saying that the uh, Iraqi commanders were asking uh, for permission to use chemical weapons on us. And that's quite a disturbing thing to hear. And so my friend, who was a Christian also, and I, looked at each other and thought, well, what do we do about this? And the only thing we felt we could do was to go behind our vehicle and pray together. And that's what we did. And having prayed together, we committed ourselves into God's hands and thought, now we must get on with our job and do the best we can in these circumstances. And the Lord is in charge. And so that was our decision. And we felt good about that. As it happened, the Iraqi command and control structure was so shot through that they were unable to uh, bring that those circumstances about, even if they had the chemical weapons to 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 launch on us. But it was a salient uh, uh, um, salient lesson to me uh, in putting your trust in God in extreme circumstances. There was another slightly less. Um, globally significant event, but significant for me in Bosnia when I was with the United Nations in 1994. I was a company commander and I was making my way to one of our critical sites uh, to see the troops and check that they were well. And it was the one occasion on the whole tour of six months when I rather foolishly departed without my interpreter. 
And I found that the Bosnian Muslims amongst whom we were living had put in a illegal checkpoint on the road and manned it with armed men. And they weren't allowing any UN traffic through. And there I was in my Land Rover with my driver, no interpreter, being invited at gunpoint by the Bosnian Muslims to turn around and go back. You can't do that sort of thing. You, you have to press on. Otherwise, they'll just prevent you from doing everything. So I was in a dilemma. What do I do? So I tried to argue with very loud, simple, simple English, which had the effect of the uh, soldier I was talking to thrusting his AK-47 through the window into the side of my head. And I thought, what do I do now? And so uh, I drew my pistol and pointed it at him. And so we had this, what I look back on now as a rather comic impasse of pointing our weapons at each other and wondering what was going to happen next. Uh, my driver was sweating quite badly by now, uh, but I thought I must pray. And so I sent up an arrow prayer and then turned to my driver and said, drive on. And he looked at me quizzically and said, you sure, sir? I said, yes, drive on. And so we did. And we weren't shot at and I didn't have to shoot him. Uh, but I was in a position where I might have had to. And that would have been a difficult outcome. Um, the final story I, I tell is a different one. My last operational tour was in Baghdad in 2003. And I, ha I was given the task as a major general of commanding a small cell of 30 Brits and Americans. Uh, and our task was to seek reconciliation with the Shia and Sunni militias who were busy fighting us and each other and see if I could bring their leadership to, uh, uh, to peace and to a ceasefire and to reconciliation with the Iraqi government. And this was a really difficult task and you were nobody's friend. You weren't a friend of the militias and you were very often not a friend of the Iraqi government, the American government or the British government either. And it's a very difficult road to tread. And the Americans um, have, um, they see it as a virtue, we perhaps don't, of getting up very early to start the day. Uh, and so our first meeting with our general, our four-star general, was usually at about um, seven o'clock. And so I had to be ready, having read into all the intelligence and absolutely prepared to discuss the matters of the day with him. And I knew I had to have a time with God before I did all that. So I was getting up at five in the morning, having gone to bed probably around 11 or 12 at night the day before, getting up at five so I could have quality time with God before the day started. And in those difficult circumstances where sometimes you were very, very alone. The Psalms really came alive to me and I understood, perhaps for the first time, the heart cry of David in, um, in his loneliness and in, in his isolation when people were after his life, crying out to God for breakthrough, for mercy, for deliverance, for help in time of need. And that was my experience too. And it was wonderful in my room, at five, half past five in the morning, crying out to God in like fashion. So that was a really wonderful experience of understanding something of the power of the Psalms in enabling us to cry out to God for his help in time of need. Absolutely wonderful to hear those things. Tell me, what will you be thinking about when you reach that time on Remembrance Sunday and we have two minutes silence? Where will your mind be? My mind is, and I do think about a lot of things, but the two things, or rather two people 
in particular who I think about. Um, the first is one of my soldiers. I probably should say one was one of my soldiers, a guy called Lance Corporal Lewis Williams. And being in a Welsh regiment with so many Williams, Davises, Hugheses, uh, which called our soldiers by their last two numbers of their army number. So he was Lance, Corpor Lance Corporal Williams, 25. And he was, his nickname in the battalion was Psycho because of his refusal ever to take a backward step in the boxing ring. And he was one of the most powerful, strongest men I ever met. And when we were on a defensive uh, exercise or operation, he would dig his own trench in seconds flat and then go around looking for people to help dig theirs. A very powerful man. But on this occasion I was describing earlier in Canada, uh, he was shot in a terrible accident and all his physical strength couldn't uh, prevent the bullet that hit him from killing him. And he died while I was trying to give him mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation and um, working with my platoon sergeant to keep him alive. And that was a terrible experience to see a, a man who you liked and was delighted to lead, who was such a great member of, of your platoon of 30 men killed in front of your eyes and you could do absolutely nothing about it. So I think about him a lot. And we had had a conversation about, in fact, we'd had a conversation about an hour before that in which I'd said, we must have a chat about Christian things. He said, okay, sir, I'd love to do that. But an hour later he was dead and I didn't have that opportunity. And the other person I think about is one of my real heroes. And he's a guy called the Reverend Theodore Bailey Hardy VC DSO MC. He was a First World War chaplain, although he very nearly wasn't the First World War chaplain because he was a school teacher come vicar in Cumbria who'd had a very traumatic experience through the death of his wife and had been put into a small rural parish in Cumbria where he could recover as well as minister from that experience. And at the outbreak of the First World War, he did volunteer to become an army chaplain, but was turned down because he was considered to be too old. But in 1916, such had been the attrition of chaplains on the Western Front, that when he reapplied to be a chaplain, he was accepted. And this was during the dreadful 1916 of the Somme, when the British experienced 420,000 losses during that campaign. Uh, he entered the fray at that time. And between August 1916 and his eventual death in October 1918, he was awarded the Victoria Cross, the DSO, and the Military Cross, the most decorated chaplain in the war, and a real hero. He was attached to the 8th Lincolns and the 8th Somersets, and he shared in the soldiers' suffering. He took the claims of Christ and the command of Christ seriously, and he spent all his time in the front line. Not for him was the relative comfort of the rear areas, despite the invitation on many occasions of his commanding officer uh, to go and get some rest. He steadfastly refused to leave the front line. He was there with his soldiers all the time. He always went over the top with them when they went over the top and spent his subsequent hours uh, bringing back the wounded and the dead from no man's land for medical attention or for burial. Um, 
he won his military cross um, when uh, he was wounded under shell fire in December 1917. Um, and he won the DSO just two months before that uh, for lying out in no man's land all night with a wounded soldier who was buried up to his neck in mud, only a few yards from the German positions and a German machine gun position until that soldier sadly passed away. And he did all that having broken his own wrist um, in, the, uh, in the previous melee. And then in 1918, April 1918, some people get Victoria Crosses for one action. Hardy was doing things every day for which he was getting a citation for the Victoria Cross. He was cited for the Victoria Cross on the 5th of April and the 25th and the 26th and the 27th of April. The most extraordinary courage of this man, carrying back the wounded, digging people out of bomb buildings, burying the dead under enemy fire. And his soldiers adored him. And when in the final months and weeks of the war, really, just before his 55th birthday, he was shot in the leg, um, following up his soldiers on an advance. He was too physically weak and debilitated to... Um, to withstand the shock of being shot, and he died. And his soldiers were bereft, and there was great weeping at his, at his funeral. Um, and that's the mark of the man. And it occurs to me that if remembrance is about anything, it's about dedicating our lives to our fellow men again. <clears throat> if remembrance is only about two minutes on one Sunday every year, that's not good enough, in my view, even from a human perspective. But from a Christian perspective, if we are truly, as Paul says, ambassadors for Christ, and if God is truly making his appeal through us uh, to others, then we need to be much more in Theodore Bailey Hardy's camp than we are perhaps in the comfort of our own existence. And that is a huge challenge for me, and it's a particularly poignant challenge at remembrance, that our remembrance has got to be more than just two minutes silence. Important though that is, vital though that is, it's got to be a lifetime endeavour and part of uh, on the part of looking after our fellow man. So, Roddy, I'd like to uh, ask you probably a question that is on many people's minds, because with all the conflict going on in the Middle East and in other places, war is in our minds all the time now. And when you look around the world and you see all these conflict areas, where do you find hope? I think I find it in, in two areas. Um, first is the comfort and the joy, the inexpressible joy of my own relationship with Jesus, which does um, underpin everything and even if one's not feeling very joyful, still there's that rather thrumming away like a furnace sense of joy right at the core of my being. And you're right, as we look around the world, you know, we see a lot of disaster. Um, and uh, in the charity I um, am privileged to run, we have friends who are involved in most of those disasters. So we know friends who are chaplains in the Ukrainian army uh, and we know Ukrainians who are fighting on the front line. I had the privilege of going to see some of them in Kiev uh, almost a year ago. 
Uh, and we have friends in the Russian military as well, or associated with the Russian military. We are friends with the Russian Military Christian Fellowship, as well as with the Ukrainian Military Christian Fellowship. We have friends who uh, help train Messianic believers to serve in the Israeli Defense Force. When I say train, I mean prepare them spiritually and physically for their national service. And there are a lot of Messianic believers um, who who do their time in the IDF. But we also have friends in the Palestinian police who are Christian men, uh, and they keep their faith very quiet. Of course they do. Uh, but nonetheless, they're passionate followers of Jesus, and we know them, we love them. And indeed, they pray together with their Israeli brothers in Christ across the hills. One sits in the Judean hills and another sits in the Sumerian hills and they pray uh, for each other. And we have friends in Armenia, in the Armenian armed forces and the Azerbaijani armed forces and so on around the world in all these conflict spots. I think I take comfort almost perversely, but not perversely actually, uh, from what Jesus himself has to tell us about the state of the world, particularly in chapters like Matthew 24. Um, where, frankly, we can't presume on a peaceful world. And if we understand our scripture, and if we understand the nature of evil and the personal existence of the devil, this world is not going to be a peaceful place until Jesus comes again. And Jesus makes this very clear in his teachings, but he also tells us, don't fear, I have overcome the world. And if we are in Christ, we have overcome the world and can with him living in us. And that's his, that is the excitement of the Christian faith, that despite all these disasters, both natural and man-made, you know, we can overcome in Jesus' name if we are following him. And so the other thing that really comforts me is that he will come again. You know, there is a day coming, and we might not see it whilst we're in this mortal body, but we will certainly see it uh, when we are resurrected, when he comes again in the clouds, in his glory, to take his rightful throne in Jerusalem and to rule the nations. And that is his eternal promise to us. And it can't fail. And we will be given immortal bodies, as Paul tells us in, in, in Thessalonians, amongst other places. And that's truly exciting. And it transcends this human existence and gives us that hope when we see the whole vista of the Christian promise or the promise we had in Christ, that all will be well one day. And if we truly follow him and if we're seeking to do his work on earth, to go and make disciples of all the nations, teaching everything he taught us to teach them, then we'll see it and we will enjoy it forever. So that's 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 where my hope comes from. That's absolutely brilliant. And by the way, it's where my hope comes from, too. <laughs> Just before we wrap up, I, I want to invite you to just explain as simply as you can uh, how anyone who wants to can also join the adventure of following Christ and know the joy you're talking about and discover the peace and the hope and the love. Could you just explain that? I discovered it very, very simply. Well, I saw Christ in action, but the process, and it is a process, and the Bible says that everybody who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. If we call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, if we ask him, Lord Jesus, 
save me. Lord Jesus, would you come into my life and make me a new creation as you promised? It requires repentance of our sins. If we turn from our sins and follow Christ, we will be forgiven. And Theodore Bailey Hardy in the trenches in the First World War, through his actions and then through his words, was urging his soldiers to be reconciled to Christ. And for them, they didn't have the luxury of assuming that they would live to the age of 70 or beyond. They knew that their existence could be snuffed out in seconds, if not minutes. And so their existential crisis was much greater than ours. Uh, but they had that choice to receive Christ or not. And in some ways, it's simple. That's what you have to do. In other ways, it's difficult because it demands a lifetime of discipleship, of walking what Jesus called the narrow way, which is not easy. But boy, is it joyful. And boy, is it rewarding. And boy, does it have eternal benefits. That's marvellous. Roddy, thank you so much. Um, I can't wait to get you back. <laughs> and uh, you can talk to us more about uh, some of those challenges and some of the benefits. But for today, thank you again. It's been absolutely a privilege. Thank you. That's pretty good, isn't it? In a moment, we will have two minutes silence. But I just want to tell you about a conversation I had exactly a year ago. Exactly a year ago, on Remembrance Sunday, uh, we were watching somebody else talk in a similar way about their experience in the forces and their faith in Jesus Christ. And I stood by the door, as I will do in just a few minutes, and um, shook hands with people on the way out. And this very delightful man who had been coming to St. Michael's for a matter of months, and I was in the process of getting to know, we had a nice conversation, and he was full of admiration for everything he'd just heard. What he didn't know, and what I didn't know, was that was going to be our last conversation. Although he was relatively young, in his early 60s, I'd say, two days later, he died in his sleep. And I've always regretted that we didn't develop the conversation and talk about how he could have had the same faith as the speaker that we heard back that day. And that's why I asked Roddy that last question this year. Roddy, tell us about how we can share that love and that joy that you know. And I just want to say, you know, there are times when God knocks on the door of our heart, as it were. There are times when it seems like his voice seems close. And I want you to know that it's not a, a falsehood or one of those airy-fairy invitations. That, that kind of joy and that kind of challenge of following Jesus Christ is one that you're invited to join in with. So am I. And to renew every day. It's not something that I just prayed years back. It's something I pray every day. Lord Jesus, I want to follow you closely today. So if during a two-minute silence you feel that this is a day when you need to renew your covenant to follow Jesus Christ, why not just tell him that and make it an opportunity to dedicate yourself to his service? Well, I invite you to stand and we'll observe two-minute silence.
they shall grow not old as we that are left grow old age shall not weary them nor the years condemn at the going down of the sun and in the morning we will remember them we will remember them <laughs> 